Here we are, you made it. Third build class. It's awesome. We want to do um, at the beginning what we uh, do every time together, and that is I want you to turn your notebook over to the other side so you can look at the back. So you can see those build disciplines that we're trying to orient our lives around and try to do it together. And um, it starts with the most important one, uh, the one that you cannot play leapfrog over. You cannot play leapfrog over your own heart. Uh, It's very easy to do. I find myself uh, still needing to discipline myself on this and and, uh, not ignore this. Uh, There is a continual propensity in your flesh to trust in yourself, to rely on yourself, to just go forward in your life and in your family and in your ministry uh, on your own. Um, And uh, it's very important for us to remember that first and foremost, our inner man must come back um, to God um, where he has revealed himself most clearly, and that is his word. And so we need to shepherd our heart, we need to discipline our heart, we need to counsel our heart, we need to lead our heart to the Word of God so that we can meet with Jesus Christ, so that we can know Jesus Christ, so that we can grow in our love and our affections for Him, so that we can enjoy Him more and more, so that we can serve Him, so that we can obey Him, so that we can grow in our fear of Jesus Christ. Um, so all of that, it's, it's all about coming back to that. That kind of a man who um, is orienting his life always towards that. He's, he's pushing himself. He's driving himself towards that all of the time. That man um, is a man that has something to offer the sinner in the world because that man has been meeting with, with God. That's the kind of man you must be. If you don't become that kind of a man, if you're not going to be that kind of a man, you're just greatly hindered and hampered and, and maybe even a, cause trouble for others. <laughs> I know that in my own life, that, that when I'm not pursuing Jesus Christ in this way that we're talking about as well, I don't have as much to offer. I, I don't know what to... My, my counsel is weaker that I give to my family and, and the people I meet with. Um, I, I may be more flesh-driven in the things that I say, um, it's important for us to commune with, with God through his word and to be that kind of a man. A great Old Testament picture of that is, is Moses, right? There was no man that God spoke to face-to-face like, like he did with Moses. And people knew it, and they feared him, and they, they knew that he was a man of God. He's, he's called that over and over in the Old Testament, Moses the man of God. That's what we must be. And then the next place of temptation to play leapfrog over is um, the home, the household relationships that you're in. Um, For whatever reason, I don't know what it is, it was just part of our fleshly condition, we want to skip past those people to get to other people, to get to the other places that seem more important. And um, we do that from our youth on up. We talked about this a little bit last time, that when you hit about junior high, it's like all of a sudden you've come to the to the obvious conclusion that all of the smart and cool people don't live with you. And so you want to be outside of your home going 
and hanging out where everybody else is exploring everything else that's out there and you're just you know you you live where you live so you can sleep you can eat you can shower you can get clean clothes and you can get the basics and then you're just moving on and um, if that continues for about six years through high school it's interesting when you get to college and you live with roommates um, for a while it's cool because you're with your roommates but then that just kind of fizzles away and next thing you know you're just like strangers passing in the night you don't really pay attention to each other it's just again another place to eat and sleep and get your clothes clean and, and all of that and you're moving on and then we all deceive ourselves completely so and say but when I get married it'll never be like that and after a while you find out after you're getting the forever roommate your wife that um, it's you're just man work is seems to be tugging on you and and then even good things like ministry you uh, and, and elders and pastors need to be very careful of this to not be dragged outside of their house too quickly the place that you need to impact first with your heart for God is your home it must be that way it has to be that way look at um, sometime take a look at the, the the qualifications for elders and for deacons in first Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 and just ask yourself which ones of the qualifications deal with the heart or the, the man's character who he is and which ones deal with his household relationships and you will watch that um, those two are not missed at all he needs to be a one-woman man. He needs to be able to manage his own household well. So the qualifications assume and understand that the kind of man that needs to be leading God's people in his church are men who are not playing leapfrog over their households. They're, they're seeking to bring a gospel impact, a scriptural impact on the people that they live with. They want there to be a gospel aroma in their home. Okay, so if you're younger and you're still living at home with your parents, I'd say it's time for you to start coming alongside your dad, your family, whoever, and saying, what, Dad, how can I help? Le show me how to do this. Help me to, to step forward in this house and take spiritual responsibility, because this will be helpful to train me to become the kind of man that I need to be when I'm not living with you anymore. Um, if you're with your roommates, um, you know, this, this is applicable to you as well. To, to step into their lives and seek to care for them. That's good practice. It's good discipline. Don't skip over the household relationships, okay? Um, then you have a man that's like that who's feasting from his inner man on the Word of God in order to meet with the God of the Word, and he's, he's laboring to care for his family. That is a man that needs to step into every and any life possible within the church for ministry, discipline three, right? or outside of the church. That's the man who should be witnessing and evangelizing. Um, it is that man who must be sent across the world to go plant churches. It's that man who needs to go into some kind of more <clears throat> specific training to become qualified to preach and teach the God's word well. Um, that's what you want. That's the guy who should be leading a small group. That's the guy who should be teaching next generation ministries. Even that guy, especially a guy like that, needs to be caring for people in a in a set-up-and-tear-down kind of ministry, hands-on type ministry. We need men like that everywhere, at every level, in every possible service in the church. Um, because the people that he comes up against are going to be cared for well by him. Um, the body is supposed to care for the body and help the body grow. Um, and it needs to be led forward with men like that. 
So you don't want to play leapfrog over your heart. You don't want to play leapfrog over your household. And you want to step into the lives of people. Discipline four is the qualifications. And basically, we already talked about how the first two disciplines are woven within the um, qualifications. But discipline three is also all of the qualifications for elder or for deacon either revolve around the man's inner man, his character, his heart, what kind of a man is he, his family life, or what's he like in ministry. Is he a a quarreler? Is he a guy who fights? Um, Is he able to refute with sound doctrine? Um, All of them focus on those things. If that's what the qualifications focus on, then as a church, we don't want to be directing men to something else and other than that because they'll never hit it. If we're not aiming for it, you don't hit it, right? So we're going to aim for it with the hopes that we're going to hit it with a lot of men. And we want as a church to have there be this volcano that just keeps building. And the pressure builds and it builds. And we want to have an eruption of men who are ready and qualified and able to lead ministry. Um, so make sure that you focus on that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the qualifications about mid-year. And uh, we'll give you a tool that will help you to be prayerful about the deacon qualifications in your own life. Um, so that you can begin to pray through them on a weekly basis. Discipline five is the hermeneutic. Um, one of the key things that we want to do with you this year is we want to introduce to you um, the manner in which we believe the Bible should be interpreted. Um, so we're going to get to that at the very end of the year. Uh, we're going to focus on our characters first and um, really focus on all of that. And then we're going to get to, now here's how we want to interpret God's word. And we're going to try to model that for you every time we use the Bible, especially in our survey studies like we've done the last two times where we kind of walk from left to right through our Bibles. Um, and we're also going to model that when we, like for today, when we drill down into one passage in Hebrews 4. Um, but we'll, we want you to be equipped for that. In fact, one of the reasons why we save it for the end is it's kind of a tease also, uh, an enticement for H3. Um, what Smed's doing over there, Smed takes you know about half of his time and he's prime each time that they meet, um, and he's just working on. Here's how we study God's word. Here's how you uh, learn how to get the most out of it that you can in the English. And um, you're going to be asked to prepare a, a 20-minute sermon. Um, if you go into H3 and it's due at the end of the year, uh, you don't have to do it right away. And he walks with you through it, the whole thing. Um, so really, it's just kind of a, a, a staging area for you to be launched into H3 from there. And then lastly, um, our church's vision and purpose statement is the last discipline. We want you to focus around what this church is setting its sights on, in that we're setting our sights on the glory of God and the cross of Jesus as the Holy Spirit transforms our lives. And that leads us to be very active, not stagnant, but very active. We then with the gospel, want to draw in, build up, and send out. So you kind of have these two triads, God glorif- uh, the glory of God in the cross of Jesus with the Holy Spirit's transformed life, it's Trinitarian, and then a triad that's all in the gospel. Draw in, build up, and send out. So we want to be focusing on that together as a, as a bunch of men in the church. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Any of you elders want to jump in and emphasize something, or anybody want to make comment? Or you have a question about it? I just want you to know that you are very unlike last year's group of guys. That when I ask if there's a question, 
you guys are very content to, at least at this point, just say nothing. Just go forward. Don't just keep talking. It's all right. So, I mean, that's okay. Uh, last year, there were a lot of questions. We spent a lot of time, and that was good, too. So don't be, don't hesitate to, to interrupt, to ask a question or whatever, okay? Because Mark and Jacob would love to answer the questions that you have. All right. Um, what we want to do next is um, we're going to break up into our build groups. But what I want you to do before you go there um, is I want you to take out your... Um, if you didn't get one of the handouts at the door, you need to get one. And then take your yellow sheet. That's your homework. I want you to take uh, uh, this. You know, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a look at the yellow sheet you got for a moment. Um. And when you guys go into your small groups, I, um, those of you guys leading small groups, I want you to feel free to do this. Um, obviously, when you get to your build groups, you're going to be going over your homework, like probably from last time. But I want you also to feel free to have the guys look at the homework that's going to be due for the next time they come so that you can kind of at least see it and, and be aware of what it is. And so what I want to do is just kind of show you what we're going to be doing for October 22nd, two weeks from now when we get together. Um, I just want you to be thinking about how have you done the last month in bringing your heart before God through his word, and please be as detailed as you can. We're just asking again, discipline one is going on in your life, just how's it going in the first month as you're focusing on it in the way that we're trying to focus on it, and then I want you to give thought to where do you want to be on by the last um, build meeting that we have this year. What do you think you want to be? What kind of a man do you want to be by then with this discipline? And And then the third question in anticipation of our next meeting on October 22nd, we're going to turn the corner and we're going to leave Discipline 1 and we're going to go towards Discipline 2, the home or the household relationships. Um, what I want you to do is I want you to answer the question, what is the current spiritual attitude and atmosphere in your home that you have set? And what I want you to understand <clears throat> is that even if you haven't been thinking that I'm setting a tone in my house, you are. You always are setting a tone in your house. The spiritual attitude, whether you're thinking about it or not, the spiritual aroma that's in your home is being set. And it's being set and you're having something to do with it. Um, so I want you to just be honest about, okay, I'm going to assess my household and I'm going to assess its spiritual condition as it currently stands. As I have set the trajectory for it right now, I'm not going to write what I hope it will be in six months. Okay? That's not fair. Because we all want to, we all are hoping for that, right? But I just want you to be honest about where is it currently, um, as you perceive it. You may not be accurate, you may not be right, you may have a, 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 a different idea than the people who actually live with you. But where do you see it at? And then um, we'll start to talk about that with discipline too. And then just on a completely different note, questions four and five. Um, I find this helpful each year just to ask you guys, um, from your vantage point in the church, what do you think God is doing in our church during this season of life and ministry? And um, what's he trying to accomplish among us? Just what's your perspective when you look at the church from where you sit? What, what do you think God's trying and wanting to do in our midst? The second question is, how are you connected with that? Because I wouldn't want any of you to think that God wants to do this in our church and I have nothing to do with it. I have no part in it. Um, 
know all of our lives are connected to what God wants to do in the church. And I want to know what part you think you might play in that. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Let's go do um, small groups uh, until about 20 till or a quarter till. We'll be back here. We'll pull you all together. Um, I want to make sure that you guys know about that men's retreat. Um, and I want to greatly encourage you to sign up for it and to be at it. If you, um, I think it's $90 for the Friday night and Saturday. Um, if, if that's a challenge for you, would, would you please let me know? Because we don't want that to be a, um, we don't want the money side of it to be a, a hindrance to you from going. Uh, so if we, if you could, uh, if having a conversation with one of the elders could help you um, figure out a way to pay part of it now uh, and then the rest of it in pieces along the way, we can certainly do that. Um, if you're in a position where uh, you need probably just somebody to help you with all of it, let us know that too. We can certainly do that, okay? But we don't want um, lack of funds to be a, a sufficient reason to keep you from going, okay? Because uh, it's going to be a great time. Um, Jerry Rag, uh, you got to hear... Smed, if you were in church last week, talk about him a little bit. He was um, one of the, the pastoral assistants under John MacArthur for several years in California. And uh, we were in seminary together at the same time. He's pastoring a church in Jupiter, Florida now. Um, and the church is, in many ways, very similar to ours. It's, it's interesting. Um, Smedley's brother-in-law, uh, Janet's brother, is in a pastoral position there that's very similar to what Smed uh, spends a lot of his time doing here, which is like the, uh, Smed, you know, pours himself out into the institute, the training stuff in H3. Well, his brother-in-law does the similar, same kind of thing there in, in Jupiter, Florida. And so it's just a lot of like-mindedness between the two churches and, and the way that we're trying to approach men in the church. Um, Jerry has a book out on leadership uh, that, do we have that at the book table? Do you know? We do. It's a short little paperback. Uh, I want to encourage you to pick that up. If you want to get a sense for what is on Jerry's mind when he thinks about leadership in the church, you would you could read that and, and uh, be able to tell very quickly. But um, he's going to be talking about how we need to be men of grace and men of granite. Um, those are two great combinations to put together. Gracious men, men marked by God's grace, men depending on God's grace men influenced and shaped by God's grace, but at the same time, granite. You need to be solid. You need to be firm. You've got to be able to handle um, difficult things that come. Uh, that's what it means to be a man, and uh, I think it's going to be a great weekend together. I would love it if, if, we, could all just, if we could all be there. Um, and we'd get a chance to be with another church, which is really cool. Um, Smed and I have both preached over at Northwest Community Church for their new pastor, his name is Scott Christmas. Uh, Scott and I were in seminary together back in California uh, many years ago. And uh, he was in Florida pastoring. And um, he had to move because um, he developed an allergic reaction to mosquitoes in Florida that was basically killing him. And he got to a point where, and he still has to walk around with his EpiPens with him because uh, uh, if he get stung by a, a mosquito and it's the right kind, it could put him in shock. And, and so it was one of those strange kind of things where he couldn't, live in, he couldn't live in Florida anymore. And his doctor said, well, I can recommend two parts of the country to live in where there's less mosquitoes, and the Southwest was one of those. And so a couple of years ago, I met him at um, 
he called me because he knew that I was out here and asked me if I knew if there was any churches that were looking for a, a pastor. And, and at the time, a couple of years ago, I didn't I, I didn't know of one except for one in Tempe, and that didn't pan out. And and then um, he got in touch with the people of at Northwest Community and and started talking with them, and, and then they just brought him out this last summer. And so he's now their pastor over there, and um, he was gone this summer for a couple of different things, and Smed and I were able to preach for him, and so we were able to start building a little bit of a relationship together. And um, they're the ones that are bringing him out, and they asked if we would like to come along, and, and because we know Jerry, uh, we were like, yes, we'd love to do that. And we're even in th- considering possibly a third church being involved as well in the East Valley, so... We're, we're kind of working on that. But anyway, it would just be great. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to be together with somebody who thinks the same way about leadership and about men as we do. But also we get to do something that's really important and potentially build relationship with other churches. Um, and I, that's something we haven't had enough of. Um, it's, it's easy to get isolationistic a little bit, and we don't want to be that way. So I just want to encourage you to sign up for that. And if you need help uh, financially, just let me know. Okay? All right. Well, let's take our, our worksheet out for today. We're going to be in Hebrews 4. Let's turn there. Build, as you know, has us focusing on the heart. And what we like to do um, um, as we work through these disciplines, whenever we can, whenever it's possible to do so, we'll, we'll do it especially for the first two on the heart and the home. We like to do a biblical survey. We like to start from the left side of our Bibles and just kind of look through all of the Bible and see what does the Bible say about the heart. But that's not the way that we usually want to um, handle God's Word, just constantly doing a topical study or a, a theme study. Those are very helpful, very good to do. But as you know, in our church, we really like to be able to drill down in one passage and stay there and look at that one passage. And that's what we get to do today. So after having two times together where we did a biblical survey, today's going to be different than that. We're not going to be turning the pages of our Bible. We're going to have our Bibles open to one page, and we're going to stay there for a long time, okay? For at least the next two hours. Um, so we're not going to stay there for two hours. But we will be there for an hour. Um, anyway, uh, so Hebrews 4, verse uh, 12, is what um, caught my attention as a, a verse uh, to think about in regards to the word of God in the heart because both of them are mentioned together in the same verse. And so I started to, to take a look at verse 12 and it, it made me want to back up and see its context. And really chapters 3 and 4 together are just have to, have, you have to look at them together. Um, but discipline one could give us the impression that the heart is really what is, is, is the key thing and the word of God that's the key thing but what's really great about this verse and this passage is that it shows you that the heart and God's word is actually a means to something even greater that he wants to accomplish and be sure of in your life so discipline one on the heart and the word of God is not an, even an end itself it's a means to a, a greater end that he's after So what I want to do is I want to actually back up and I want to start in chapter 3. And I want to read chapters 3 and 4. Because we're going to be going back through them so much together as we look at verses 11 to 13. But I I want you to have the benefit of having heard it so you can follow along as I read. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him 
as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did, But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, that rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David so long after so long a time, just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's the third time he said that, right? For if Joshua had given them rest, He would not have spoken of another day after that. So, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. And then our verses. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience, For the word of the Lord of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword 
and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at his word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these words and that you would press them deep down in our hearts. We pray that you would come with your spirit and make us alert, not with human alertness, but with heavenly alertness, your alertness. Um, Make our hearts soft to receive this word so that it can go deep inside and be implanted firm and that we can be doers of this word, not just hearers who delude themselves. Lord, let us be diligent to be um, sure that we have entered your rest that you have offered in Jesus. Help us to see the role that the word of God plays in this and help us to see where you, the God of the word, is positioned in all of this as well. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. The main command that we're going to look at and that leads this whole thing off in Hebrews 4, verse 11, is the one, let us be diligent. Um, That is a call to us guys to constantly keep your foot on the accelerator, spiritually speaking. Okay? Um, This passage calls us to wake up if we've thought that it's been okay to hit the cruise control button in our spiritual lives. You can't. There is no such thing. That's a dangerous thing, to have taken your foot off the gas and just coast. The Christian life is not about coasting. It is about accelerating, being diligent. Um, Other ideas of what it means to be diligent is to be passionate for, and in particular, to be passionate for God's rest, in verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Um, And that rest is a big rest. It is salvation rest, as you'll see. And salvation rest is big. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, salvation is spoken of in three different ways. It is spoken of a past tense thing that we have been saved. It's spoken of as a future thing. We will be saved. And it is spoken of as a present tense thing. We are being saved. You can see this. Look at it in terms of past. Look in chapter 4, verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. We, we have believed, and we have entered that rest. Verse 10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from all of his works, as God did from his. We have rested from our self-righteous attempts to make ourselves right before God. That's a past tense reality for believers. Um, we are still entering that rest. Our very command here is a present tense, be diligent to enter that rest. And there is a future entering of the fullness of that rest. You can think of Revelation 14, verse 13, where we will then, in heaven, rest from all of our labors. Um, And the thought that I want to have you think about here at the beginning is, is how would you guys say that you've been doing in terms of being diligent? Is there evidence, even in, in your life from this last week, that you were diligent to keep pursuing Christ to, to pursue the salvation rest, you probably didn't think of it in those terms, but 
But were you diligent to pursue the salvation rest that God offers in Jesus Christ? Have you, are you passionate for that? Is that something you're zealous for? Is there evidence of zealousness in your life this last week? You might even be asking yourself the question, well, well does it matter? Uh, this passage is huge. It matters greatly. Um, that was an important subject for the original recipients of this letter. They were Hebrew Christians. They had been Jews uh, who followed Judaism, and they became followers of Messiah Jesus out of that. Um, and like any church and any gathering, no doubt there are some who are genuinely saved, and mixed in with them, there are some who profess to be saved who are not. Um, they left Judaism to follow Jesus Christ. They heard Jesus' words, so to speak. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest, spiritual rest that goes all the way to your soul. You will find rest for your souls, Jesus says. But then when they got persecuted by their fellow countrymen for leaving Judaism, they took their foot off the accelerator and thought, yeah, we can back off on this Jesus thing a little bit, and we can maybe even go back to Mosaic Law and living under Judaism again. They took their foot off the accelerator. They didn't realize the danger that that poses for them. Because this kind of a thing where God's people have taken their foot off of the accelerator has happened in the past. That's what we just read in Hebrews 3 and 4. This isn't a new thing. This is something that happens over and over and over throughout redemptive history. That God's people get tempted to not pursue God's great salvation with passion and with zeal and with diligence. And this, according to the writer of the he- to the Hebrews, this can't happen with these people. History must not repeat itself. And history cannot repeat itself with us. So what is this passage all about? In Hebrews 4, 11 to 13, we discover three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds his heart into salvation's rest. So I'm going to put it in the form of three questions. I know you see four on your page, but there's three. And then there's four. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'm going to give you a few in these questions. Are you, number one, are you passionate to spend yourself? Guys, are you passionate to spend yourself uh, and to spend yourself particularly to enter the rest that comes from God? That's Hebrews 4.11. That's what we just looked at. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So as we parachute down into this verse, we're struck immediately by this command, let us be diligent. Um, That's what I mean by spend yourself. Uh, The command here means that it's not accidental. You can't be diligent about something accidentally. Right? It's not accidental, but you have to be especially conscientious about the thing that you're being diligent about, right? It's a very intentional action that you're trying to undertake. Um, that means you're, you are to be concerned to discharge an obligation. That means you're zealous. It means you're eager. It means you're diligent. It means you're thoughtful. It means that you're taking pains to achieve, achieve what? The entering into that rest. But it's not just any rest. He says it's that rest. And this is why I wanted to read Hebrews 3 and 4, because it's a rest that he has already mentioned before. And the therefore of verse 11, what does the therefore tell you? You got to what? You got to look back at what came before it. 
And so there's a rest that's already been mentioned. There's a therefore that starts this whole thing. And so there, you have to do a big back up into what has been written before this. There's a sense of urgency here in the command. Uh, there's a specific rest that's in mind. And, and so we better take a, a moment and back up a little bit. So the rest that he's been talking about in chapters 3 and 4, it's a very big rest in the mind of the writer of the Hebrews. This is not a spiritual catnap that's on his mind, but a big spiritual rest. This is what God has always had in mind for his people from the very beginning. When he called his people out of Egypt and they assembled in the wilderness, God was thinking of big rest for these people. Big rest. Spiritual rest. And to help his people, called Israel in the past, to understand this big rest, do you know what he did? He did something really gracious to them. He gave them a whole bunch of little rests that would help them understand what his bigger rest was all about. God gave them smaller rests that would help them think about the more important, bigger spiritual rest. That's like giving a kid a tricycle or a bike with training wheels before you just give him the bike without the training wheels. I'm going to give you this. This will help you for the bigger thing that's coming. It'll train you. So in God's, God's mind, the smaller rests that he gave, they were never to replace the bigger rest. They were never to stand as the end uh, in place of the bigger rest. They were always instead to point beyond themselves to the greater rest that he had. Well, what were these smaller rests that Israel had? Obviously, every week, the Sabbath day. A day of rest, right? Then, there was also in Mosaic Law, every seventh year, the whole year was a, a year of Sabbath, where the land had rest from farming and the, the work that they did on it. And then once in a lifetime, once in your lifetime, maybe, if you lived for longer than 50 years, came the year of Jubilee, every 50th year. And that was another year of freedom and all slaves were set free and the land had rest again and, and etc. So God gave at least the three initially in Mosaic Law, three smaller rests. One that came by on a little wheel that spun around once a week. Every week you hit this rest and saw it. And then once every seven years came this whole year of rest. And then once in a lifetime, this big rest came called the year of Jubilee. Now, all of that was to make an Israelite think beyond those three rests to an even bigger rest that was available, that God was thinking of. In fact, Israel even had um, another rest to be concerned about, the rest that they would get um, with the land. We'll talk about that in a, minute, in a minute here. But now notice in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 3, look at this. Notice this. Um, there's a concern on the writer uh, of the Hebrews here. He says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry, God says, with this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, wait a minute here. In my wrath, I swore they don't get my rest. In the wilderness, Israel had a whole series of cycles of rest. Did they not? I mean, they had 
Sabbath day. They had the seventh year rest. They had the year of Jubilee. So what rest is God thinking of that they might not enter then? It's obviously the greater rest of salvation in God himself that their smaller rest were to point to, that were to help them see their great need for a bigger rest. And then later, entering even into the promised land was to be another kind of rest for Israel that was to make them think beyond that rest to even greater rest that God gives in salvation. You can see that all through Joshua. And he even mentions that in Joshua, uh, in, I'm sorry, in Hebrews 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, then there wouldn't be another day to talk about after that. If that's all God had in mind, get to the promised land, you got the rest. Then why would we be still talking about there's a day in which you need to make sure you don't harden your heart? But notice what he says in Hebrews 4, 6 to 8. Follow me with this. Look at Hebrews 4, 6 to 8. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day called today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after it. Do you know what he's quoting? He's quoting Psalm 95. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Psalm 95 was written by David. It's a psalm of David. David wrote Psalm 95 long after the smaller cycles of rest. And he wrote it long after Joshua gave them rest. And here's David saying, today, in my Davidic day, don't harden your hearts if you hear his voice. Okay? Do you understand what he's doing here? Psalm 95 is concerned that once again, in David's day, the greater salvation rest that God provides is being missed. David sees his generation doing the same thing that the generation in the wilderness was doing. And he's saying, today, in my day, don't let this happen again. A pattern is developing with those that God intends to save for himself. His big salvation rest that he offers, get this guys, it seems to be in perpetual danger of being missed. Even though Israel had all the cycles of the smaller rests, right? They had the land. They were as powerful as they were going to be under David. The land had rest from war. But there's still a concern that salvation's rest is going to be missed. Look at verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Even though you may have Sabbath day, seventh year, year of jubilee, the promised land, evidently there's still a, some kind of a Sabbath rest for the people of God beyond these things. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. Interesting point. What is he saying? The one who has that Sabbath rest of God, that salvation rest, is one who's no longer working to establish self-righteousness. He's rested from that. I give up on that. That was wearisome. That made me weary and heavy laden. And I heard somebody say, come to me if you feel that way. Jesus said that. Okay? 
So there is a rest that is marked by the abandonment of good works to establish your own self-righteousness. Now, it is that bigger rest that is now in the mind of the writer of the Hebrews. That's the rest he's concerned about. So, in Moses' day, guess what the people did? They heard God's voice and they hardened their hearts to his voice, to his words. Their hearts and his words were not in a full contact sport. And God swore in his anger, they're not going to get my rest. David says, centuries later, you're not going to get the rest. Even though you've got the land and you've got Mosaic law, you're not going to get it. Don't harden your hearts. And now what's the writer of Hebrews saying? I'm concerned that the pattern's repeating itself, that history is repeating itself again. And he's quoting Psalm 95 to establish this. These Christians who are being persecuted, they're in danger of missing the greater rest of salvation in Jesus Christ. The perpetual danger, listen guys, the perpetual danger of the church in any age is this continuing danger that we will coast. We think we're, we're Christians. We're all right. Look, we still got Bibles. We do Christian things. Dangers that will coast and we won't be diligent. We'll give up being zealous. So let's allow the context of Hebrews here to inform our idea of what this means to be self-spending. Can I give you, what, spend yourself, okay, what does that mean? Let me give you a couple of things here just to think about. First, spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished at the cross. Let, you can't begin to be diligent to enter God's rest if you haven't spent yourself to understand what he did at the cross. And Hebrews has got, has got great stuff on this. Go back to Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's what Jesus did at the cross. You need to spend yourself, men, to know that that he made purification of sins. He doesn't call you to make purification of sins. He made purification of sins. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. Look at this. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He tasted death for us. He tasted death for you. You need to spend yourself to know that and to meditate on that. Verse 14 of the same chapter. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Through his death he rendered powerless the devil and he rendered powerless your fears of death. You need to spend yourself to know this gospel. But verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brethren to become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation, to satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. 
What does it mean to spend yourself to enter into God's rest? It means that you better start by spending yourself to know what Christ accomplished through his death at the cross. Another thing to think about, spend yourself then entrusting your life to this. Spend yourself to know what it is he did, but then spend your life giving yourself to this. Every day again saying, I give myself to these truths. I rest my life on these propositions. I rest my life on these realities, these grace realities. Biblical salvation is about you and me diligently entrusting ourselves to these propositions. You don't ever stop. You don't ever coast on entrusting yourself to the gospel. That will have an unavoidable impact on your life. So this is not a diligence. Listen, we're being called to be diligent about these things. Why? Somebody might think, well, sometimes you're diligent because you're not sure if it's going to work. Right? That's not why we're being called to be diligent. There is no doubt about whether or not this salvation works. Or there's no doubt on its certainty. It is certain. But we are called to be diligent in that certainty, from that certainty, about what Christ has accomplished. It's actually God's intention, guys, that your diligence... Your self-spending actually springs forth from confident trust that what he said he did, he did. You might think that if something's sure, it's a sure thing, that you can coast. That's not what God said salvation is. It is more sure, what he accomplished at the cross is more sure for you than anything that you think is certain in this life. Gravity is pretty certain. You know what's more certain than gravity? What Christ said he did to save sinners. And you might think that means I can, now that I'm saved, I got my fire insurance, I can, you know, he's going to finish what he started, right? See, that's the way we think, but God didn't design his salvation to be that way. From the certainty, you run, and you run, and you run, and you be diligent, and you be passionate. This is taught in Philippians, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to Complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, right? Um, And yet at the same time in Philippians 2, we are called to what? Work out. Not work for. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because what? Not because it's uncertain. I'm not sure. i got to work because I'm not certain what God did. No, because I am certain what God did. That's why I work. So, There's a lot in this first point here. Look, how do we summarize it? There's nothing accidental, guys, about you spending yourself. You don't wake up and go, whoops, I didn't even realize it, but I was spending myself today for the gospel. It doesn't happen that way. We are to be especially conscientious, intentional in our zeal to enter the great salvation rest that uh, Jesus Christ has achieved for us. Guys, is, is that your passion? Is that your passion to spend yourself in entering the rest that God has, that God is, that God will provide for you. Do you did you find yourself... Are you in the wrong room, young man? <laughs> He's just going to ignore me and drink my coffee. Yes, David. That's an appropriate time to ask a question. Yeah, thanks. Um, when it talks about previous generation and in hard hearts... 
mean, would it, it be fair to say that in, in, in all generations that there were a remnant that, that were faithful? Yeah. Like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Jacob or uh, Caleb and uh, Joshua. Yeah. And that, so so that, you know, I, I just read through Kings and I talk about like four kings. I was reading, like I, I outlined four kings in Judah that were that were good kings. That there were a remnant in all generations that that I mean we can look at it and, and say that these were men that were had faith in future Messiah. Absolutely, um, that's the that's the pattern over and over is that um, the promises that are set out to the people of God regardless of the period of time in redemptive history um, are made to a, a big bunch of people that doesn't mean that everybody that had the promises made to them uh, that they were applied to them um, within Israel you have a remnant and, and in, in some ways the church is like that today there's a lot of people that are in the church um, under the banner of Christianity but that doesn't mean that everybody within it because sometimes that when I'm listening, it sounds like the impression that everybody was unfaithful. Yeah, yeah well, in, the, the reality is in the Old Testament, the predominant number of them were unfaithful. Would that, remnant, would that hold true today, too, still? Ah, boy. I, it's I mean, probably not far off. Yeah. Um, if the difference, there's a, there's a big difference. Well, I don't know. If there, I'm not going to say that. That I was thinking sometimes because the old covenant did not have a means built within it to change the heart. Israel abused the old covenant and treated it like they could earn salvation. That was an intent that God never gave it for. They were to believe like Abraham. But they were had a great propensity because of their flesh to want to be self-righteous. The church, I think, is even though we don't have a covenant that's like that, because the new covenant, the way that you come into it is with a new heart. Um, but there is still a danger because our flesh, people who are around that hearing of the gospel in the new covenant, um, might still take even Christian righteousnesses if I can say it that way, and want to try to work for salvation with that and, and look like they're Christian, just like Jews in the Old Testament look like they were Jews. That is certainly a, a propensity to that. But, um, yeah, there's. I think what you're seeing with the writer of Hebrews is that he's very concerned that this is a very mixed crowd. And how do you? what do you say to people who appear like they're coasting? You say this. Be diligent. And uh, pursue... Don't let up. Uh, you need to be certain, and um, that's important for them. Yeah, Jeff. Um, just, I guess, uh, it, you know, what? it, it sounds kind of like, because I, for years, you, you kind of hear that you're saved, and once saved, always saved, and, and I don't have a problem with that. Too, sure. But it sounds like, you know, really salvation is kind of on a continuum. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about justification, sanctification, perseverance, which are kind of one way to look at it, but then you think of past rest, pursuing a present rest, and it's it's kind of a continual no. thing. And if you really look at salvation biblically, it's not something you just say, "Oh, back then, yep. you know, I prayed a prayer and it's done." And it, it, it's 
And, and the fact, you know, when I look at the verse that says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. While we're pursuing, frankly, he's going to get it done. That's right. And that's what's really true. That's right. And and just be, we would think, um, we would think that if, well, maybe not all of us would think, the temptation would be, that if I have to be diligent now, presently, that must mean I don't have it. But that's not the, what the New Testament says. You have it. But he designed it in such a way that there would be a present pursuit of it also. And he also designed it in such a way that there's still yet a future ob- obtaining of it in fullness. Jacob. Yeah, if you look at Hebrews 3, verse 6 and 14, there's statements made about what God has done. Then there's this. Absolutely. That's good. Excellent. So, um, if you thought of your Christian life as at one point in the past you spent yourself uh, to make sure that you had salvation... But if you've let off the gas, that's Hebrews here is trying to correct that. Do you understand? You need to keep being diligent and zealous. So are, are you spending yourself continually now in the power of the gospel to continue to sanctify you um, in the salvation rest that you have? Are, are, you, are you longing for the day? Are you spending yourself in such a way that you're, you're even anticipating what you know you can't have right now? But you want it when it comes or when you die. This is a call to spend yourself. Number two, search yourself. Secondly, are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Now here's this verse that we all are very familiar with. Let's talk about the big picture of this verse and then we'll unpack it in detail. Watch this. It starts off with what word? For... Meaning, because, let me explain. Hey, Josh, would you be willing to punch that down a little bit? Thanks. Um, This is the explanation that is given for why the readers need to be diligent. Why do you need to be diligent? Well, because the Word. Because the Word of God. Do you know what the Word of God is doing? It's living. It's active. It's sharper than... Anything, it can pierce further than anything, and it's, it reveals the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Why do you need to be diligent? Because of the Word. You must understand what God's Word, guys, is all about and what it does. What it is doing, whether you're aware of it or not, this is what the Word of God is doing. Most importantly, what it's doing in your heart, you need to understand. So you spend your salvation. Uh, you, I'm sorry, you spend yourself to enter salvation's rest because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. So the writer of Hebrews has already been making this point. He's over and over. He's drawn a connection between the voice of God in the heart. Today, if you hear His voice, His words, don't harden your heart. Over and over through chapter 3 and 4, he's put these two together. And he's not saying something new here in verse 12. He's talking to us about how the word of God in the heart is related. God has intended that his words intersect my heart. 
And the problem unveiled here by the writer of the Hebrews is this, that there is evidently a propensity to make our hearts unreceptive to God's word. The church needs to be really careful about this. The church can make its people's hearts unreceptive to God's word. We'll do this ourselves. We'll do this to each other. So the call of the writer of Hebrews in this entire section is this. If God's word is doing this, if God's voice is out there, and in particular here in verse 12, it's searching out our, our inner recesses, our inner man, then what should you do? Befriend it. Befriend God's word. Participate with God's word. Cooperate with God's word by giving it that platform in your life from which it can be most effective in its searching in your life. Unreceptive to the word of God. If you do nothing with your heart, it will. If you do nothing with the inner man, even the new condition that you are, because you're in a mixed condition. If you do nothing with this new man that you are, you will become hardened towards God's word. You won't become softer. God has you in a new condition where you have to fight for softness of heart, teachability, humility, receptivity. You have to fight for that. If you do nothing, expect your heart to become unreceptive. Expect your inner man to become unreceptive to God's word. Okay? So... What should you do? Knowing that the Word of God is this way, it's the second point. Use the Word of God. Partner with the Word of God. Utilize the Word of God. Cooperate with it by having the Word of God search you. Put yourself close enough to it where you can open it and it will do that searching that it does. You need to see yourself as the Word of God sees you. You need to see yourself as the God of the Word sees you. Why? Um, evidently entering God's salvation rest depends on it, guys. It depends on you being able to see the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. The only ones who enter the fullness of salvation's rest are those who humble themselves and participate with God's word as it reveals to them who they are in the inner man. So now let's look at the, the specifics of verse 12. For the word of God is living. Now that word in the, in the Greek is thrown way up at the front for emphasis. If you were to look at it in, in Greek, it would go this way. For living is the word of God. Living. That's the emphasis. Living. There's something alive. It's God's word. God's word is living like God is living. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Um, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Here, the word of God is living. It is alive for this salvation rest. God's word lives, guys, to penetrate you, to search you, to discern your heart. It lives to achieve its scrutinizing gaze into the deepest recesses of who you are. Now, something can be alive, but it can be hibernating. Right? Something can be alive and it can be paralyzed. Something can be alive but be in a coma. Something can be alive but be in a cocoon. But not God's word. It is living and what? Active. Energetic. God's word is energetically alive for God's intentions and purposes in your heart. Okay? And then what you say after that next is even 
more important. God's word is living and it's active. It's like a soft, cuddly teddy bear. No. Here's here's the illustration that I use all the time on this. Um, I want you to imagine you're at a football game. You're all jam-packed in your section. And somebody comes and they bring um, a beach ball. And they blow it up. And you've seen this, right? And somebody takes that ball and bats it out into the crowd. And that ball just starts flying around. All of these independent wills sitting everywhere. That ball is at, it is at the mercy of one person hitting it to another and, it, and it's going fast in one direction and all of a sudden it just goes a sharp turn and it's headed actively and energetically into another direction. So it gets batted this way, it gets it batted that way. That ball looks like it's alive. And that ball looks like it is active. I mean, it is active. But it is at the mercy of every will that it comes to. Listen, that is our current days. That's the postmodern way of viewing church and Bible study. Here's what the Word of God means to me. Well, what it means to me is... And what it means to me is... We just hit it back and forth to each other like it's a soft... It's, it's dependent on what my will says, and I'll bat it this way. That's not what is being said here at all. You would never do that with something that is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Could you imagine somebody in the crowd taking out a two-foot-long sword? Uh, All of a sudden, your will is like, I don't think I want to take a swing at that. Right? A two-foot double-edged sword all of a sudden, all of those distinct wills out there, they don't feel so supreme anymore over the sword that's spinning and coming down. Um, it doesn't say that it is a sharp two-edged sword. It says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. This is that shorter sword that the Roman soldier would use for hand-to-hand combat. It was Its grip would have been well-worn and, and shaped just right for one hand, not a bunch of hands. One hand, the soldier's hand. It was the sharpest weapon in his arsenal. That sword was meant um, for his hand alone to be directed by his will alone. And God's word is that way. When we come into the presence, guys, of, of God's word, we should give no impression to ourselves and we shouldn't give any impression to each other that our wills are supreme over God's will or over his word. That our wills influence what his word means. Rather, we are to humble ourselves and carefully place ourselves under his word. Under the sharpest of all instruments. Because there's somebody's hand on that word. God's hand is on that word. And he's guiding it perfectly. And guess where he's guiding it? To your inner being, your man, your inner man. And my fear, and I'm, guys, I'm guilty of this, but I would just want to encourage us all to, to think very carefully about when we're all standing around, batting around theological subjects with each other. Do our theological debates and conversations, what do they sound more like? Do they look more like we're batting a, a beach ball around? All very confident, all boom, boom, 
Or do we feel humbled in our conversations that there's a very sharp sword that we're handling? And, and if I'm going to hand it to you, I'm going I'm to hand it humbly and gently to you. And um, I'm going to be thoughtful. Um, what do our debates look like? And the description keeps building. It's sharp in order to penetrate deeply. It's piercing. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. Now, lots of debate exists over this kind of a double list here. Soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. And I think it, become, it can become easy to lose sight of the forest here because of these two sets of trees that are there. But I think the point is simple. It's this. What I don't have the ability to see with my own eyes what I don't have the ability to get to myself and understand, what I don't have the ability to get to and distinguish between. I, I'm not really sure I know how to distinguish between my soul and my spirit. I don't even, I haven't seen it with these eyes. I, do, I don't know. What I don't have the ability to, to get at and penetrate towards. What I can't see with my own eyes, the inward stuff of my joints and my marrow, God's word has no trouble getting to. So whatever is hidden underneath and out of sight, I may not be able to get to and discern, but guess what? God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword and can get down and can distinguish between them and say, here's soul on this side and here's spirit on this side. Here's joint on this side, here's marrow on this side. Jeff? Is there a, is there a connotation then in this passage that that we could expect some pain and discomfort in that process mm-hmm. by those words, or is that leading no. into the text? No, I, th- I think that's I think that's accurate because I think the the overall tone of the whole these, this whole section is one of, and we're going to talk about this at the end. This is heavy, and this is serious. This is so this is sobering, and um, yeah, you can expect that as he talks about this penetrating ministry of the Word of God that it's it's going to hurt. There could be some some pain involved in it, for sure. So, what is hidden from my sight and from my inward being, it's not hidden at all from God's word, guys. It's not hidden from him in your life. This is kind of the accumulation of terms, a piling up of terms to help express that the inward part of man, God's word has no trouble seeing and getting to. So, what does that mean? If it can get down there to the very inner recesses of you with no problem, what's it do once it's there? Verse 12, it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. The thoughts and the intentions of your heart. It is the great critic of your heart. This is legal terminology that's being used here. Uh, the word of God doesn't come and doesn't get down to the very core of who I am and then say, you know what, I, I think it'd be important to get a second opinion. The Word of God has an opinion. And it is able. It's not challenged to discern what the thoughts and intentions of the heart are. No, it's, it's able to. It can and it does. It judges me. It discerns me. We are opened up right before God so that it, the Word of God, can give its opinion, it can give its criticism, it can give its rebuke, it can give its warning. It can give whatever is necessary. And here's a little something of what I know inside me at the heart level. Um, and maybe you can identify with this, guys. But I know that my motives and my thoughts and my intentions are so twisted together with sin in my heart that I can't separate them out. Good thoughts mixed with sinful thoughts are so entangled within me 
um, in the deep maze of my heart that I don't know how to pull it all apart. I truly have trouble discerning what my own motives are. And in and of myself, if I'm called to search myself alone, I might be right, and I very well could be wrong about what's really going on within. In fact, I'll tell you this, um, nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, I'm going to let myself off the hook. I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt. That's the way we are. We preserve ourselves, right? But this is what God's Word does. It enables me to have a better perspective on my heart than I would have on my heart. It allows me to see my heart as it truly is. I can see myself as God's Word sees me, as God's Word searches me. This is why your life cannot be lived far away from this. Because your view of yourself will always be skewed. But at least if you have this close to you, you have the opportunity to see yourself more accurately because this can see you accurately. So, knowing that the Word of God is this way, it would be wise for me then to participate with God's Word in this, would it not? It would be completely foolish for me to think that, you know what, I don't need that. I can bluff my way out of this. I can bluff my way out of this. Any secrets that I would have that I would try to hide from God, God sees them already. I can't keep my thoughts and my motives to myself from God. The blunt reality is this, that the most secret, what I hold most secret, the God of the Word finds with the Word of God and subjects it under his scrutinizing gaze. That's the reality. So when we say shepherd your heart to the word of God, what we're talking about is position your heart near to this word so that it can see everything that your heart truly is. And again, this is the explanation given for why we should spend ourselves to enter God's rest because God's word is searching us. His word has always functioned that way. His word was doing that with the the people back in the wilderness when he was speaking through his voice. When you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts. Participate with my voice. Participate with my word. So guys, don't fight what God's word, what, what, what God's, the ministry of God's word is in your life. Don't fight it. Participate with it. Invite it in. Draw it close to your heart. Closely related to the second passion is the next one, number three. Strip yourself. Strip yourself. If 4.12, verse 12, describes what God's word does and sees, verse 13 describes what the God of the word sees. If uh, verse 12 describes how we truly are before the word of God, verse 13 describes how we truly are before the God of the word. Are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? Look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden. From his sight. But all things are open or naked and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you've searched yourself, guys, with God's word and it has revealed maybe to you that you're wearing a mask somewhere or you've got a shield over something that you're trying to protect and hide behind the shield or if you've got a disguise over your heart, listen, there's no use in pretending that God doesn't see through it. You and I are not hidden from his sight. Rather, you and I, it says here, are actually naked before God. We are open before him. God is fully aware 
of everything that I am at the heart level and that you are at the heart level. Masking or disguising what we are before God is about as effective as a child playing hide-and-seek with mom, thinking that she can't be seen because she's covered her eyes. I remember that with my kids. They would think that they wouldn't have to go hide somewhere. They could just close their eyes, and I couldn't see them. Because they couldn't see themselves, I couldn't see them. That's foolish, that's childish. But we bring that into our Christian life far too often. This idea of being laid bare uh, to the eyes of him, uh, laid bare to the eyes of him, this is it's difficult to tell exactly what the precise meaning is, but at a very minimum, it's parallel to the idea of being laid open or naked uh, before God. It's most likely the lifting up of the chin. This word was used in two different senses. It was used um, in gladiator contests, in wrestling matches, when one wrestler would grab the other by his chin and and when, when the neck is exposed, when the neck is exposed, you're very vulnerable. The knife could come out or a choke could come. The other time this word was used was when you took the chin of the sacrificial animal and you lifted it up. Again, vulnerability. You're not in control when the guy's got you by the chin and he's pulled your head back. You're not in control. Okay? But the idea here is, as God is searching, he's looking, you're not in control. He has his way. And he he is having his way over you. Um, It also could include the idea that you're lifting the head up to look right in the eyes, making eye contact. Remember doing this all the time with my little ones? Look, look at me. Look, look, I'm over here. Look at me. You grab that little precious head in your hands, cradling it like an apple. Look at me. And then their eyes are going everywhere. And you're trying to figure out how you can grab their eyeballs and turn them. <laughs> I don't recommend you try that. Okay? But it could be the idea of just getting a full face. And you know what I need, guys? I need this. I need to know that God sees me. You need to know that God sees you. We're like this with our, with our parents when we're kids. I can remember being messing around at times and doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing and all of a sudden going, why is my head on fire over here and turning my dad was looking at me? I needed to know that my dad was looking at me, that my dad could see me. Um, there's something very powerful about that, knowing that God sees us. You need to remind yourself throughout your day, God sees me. I see you, God, seeing me. That's a very, very healthy, spiritually healthy thing to do all day. Nothing is hidden from God in the end, especially because of verse 13. Um, It's with him that we have to do. That means we have to give an account to him. We have to give an account to him. So I may be tempted to put on a mask to make you look and not see what's really going on in me, but I can't do that to God. You may do that so in putting on a mask so that other people can't see past the mask, but God can see. So search yourself now with the word of God so that you might be able to strip yourself before the God of the Word. Why? 
all so that you can spend yourself to make sure you enter into his salvation rest. Does this make sense? What a precious thing that God has given to us. Now, you have three points, but there's one more, and we'll finish quickly with this one. Soak yourself. Verses 11 to 13 only give us three, but the greater context gives us a fourth one. Soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the broader context of Hebrews. Listen, verses 11 to 13 are heavy. That's a sobering warning, and the writer of Hebrews knows this. He knows by uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what we need to hear next. And what does he write next, guys? Look at it. What does he write next? Therefore, since we have a great high priest... Guys, we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. He stands between us and God, and he's on our side. And he's on the, our Father's side. And, and he intercedes for us there. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And let me remind you, this, this great high priest is the one who made purification of sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, chapter 1, verse 3. Remember, this great one became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of, of the people, chapter 2, verse 17. Guys, this is the gospel. What did the writer know that we needed to hear after this? The gospel. Soak yourself in the gospel so that if the eyes of your heart haven't yet been opened to see that you have a, a true, genuine need for a Savior, that they might be opened to see his salvation, that you see his atoning work through his Son at the cross, that you would see that you have a need for a new heart, that you could begin a new life with new passions. Can you imagine, I mean, look back on your life, guys, what you were before Christ. You weren't passionate to spend yourself. For God's salvation, you weren't passionate to search yourself by the word of God. You weren't passionate to strip yourself before God. It's only from our great high priest ministry that we can even then do this spending of ourselves and searching ourselves and stripping ourselves. Look at the end of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. The only way that we can continue to do this is that we're because of who Jesus Christ is. So Christian, you need, to, you need to soak yourself in the promises of the gospel that still flow to you from the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at verse 15. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Watch this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, guys. You are what you are. Um, he sees everything that you are. You can be very discouraged by that, but here's the word to the one who knows that what he is inside shouldn't be all that it is yet. Draw near with confidence. Draw near to God with confidence. Don't run away and hide. Don't run away and think you've got to beat yourself up to get better before you can come to God. Just draw near now to God. Draw near to him with confidence. To the throne of what? The throne of, of, of what you deserve? No, the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Guys, God knows that you are weak in this. God knows that you're in need of mercy, that you don't pursue diligently like you should. God knows that you need to find grace. God knows that you need help. God knows that you're in great need. And guess what? That's who his son is for you, the one who provides all of those things. And guess what he does for you? Look at chapter 7, verse 25. He, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once and for all, once and for all, once and for all for you when he offered up himself. Guys, you need to, when you are sobered by what the word of God reveals in your life and you strip yourself before the word of God and you're not spending yourself like you know you should, guys, you need to soak yourself in the gospel. Come back to your great high priest. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for what it says about what it is capable of doing. Father, would you um, please take away any fear that we might have of coming near to your word? Um, Help us to have courage to come before your word so that it might reveal to us what we really are, who we really are. Father, help us to set aside any masks or disguises we might want to put on. Instead, help us to be truthful and honest and to strip ourselves before you. We know you see everything, God. is. We are eager to go forward into this day saying to ourselves, I see you, God, seeing me. So God, help us to not graduate from the gospel, but to be dripping wet with it every hour of every day. For there we will find our confidence and we will find encouragement to draw near to you. Thank you for being the Savior that you are, Jesus, for taking on our weaknesses and becoming flesh so that we might have a chance to draw near to your Father because we know we would never do it on our own apart from you. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Guys, thank you for coming today. We will be back together in two weeks, October 22nd. Work on your homework before October 21st. How about that? See you guys.